Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. BC, nice to see you again. Thanks for coming back. This is this is, feels like the hundredth hour, uh, probably for, for you. Um, for, for me, it's all riveting. Um, we, we talked. Uh, we, so this is our third interview. So we, we talked um, previously around the sort of technicalities of the SR seventy one, um, and you were going through the process of describing a typical mission profile. So what we're going to do today is we'll we'll sort of talk about the operational life of of an SR-71 pilot or, or systems operator um, and, um, you know, look at how the missions were generated, how they came down to you, what the traditions of the community were, how Habu came about, for example. Um, but I thought I will keep quiet, um, I promise, and just allow you to complete your narrative then around a mission profile because I think we got to the point where you were talking about sort of following the black line, which was the sort of map in, on the map in front of you, um, that told you where to go while the guy in the back sort of ran the systems. So um, can you can you pick it up from there, take it from there? Yes. Well, the, the first of all, the, the training for the missions was very intensive, comprehensive, uh, complicated. Uh, but the end result, I think, for all of the crews was about the same. We, uh, the pilot and the RSO were very close. Uh, if uh, love is too strong a word, I, I don't think so. It's, it's that we really had a great bond between us when we had an RSO because we we went through a lot of a lot of grief and a lot of uh, training. The, the the training in SR seventy one was um, was intensive and it was uh, non yielding. You had to know your stuff, and then we practiced and every and we gave each other simulators, which is kind of unusual. Usually you go to a, to a simulator bank and some instructor gives it to you. Once you're checked out as a operational pilot, then you're automatically a simulator instructor. And so the uh, people who instructed me when I was a fledgling SR pilot trying to upgrade, uh, I would be their instructor. And, um, and we had a two-page critique that we would fill out after each one. Anyway, that was part of the, uh, the preparation. The mission planning for an operational mission, or for a training mission for that matter, uh, was done the day before. You go up to Intel, to the vault, and uh, see what, what we were gonna fly. And then get the map, the mission materials, the NOTAMs, the notice to airmen messages for any of the airfields 
might be our alternates. And then we would get a political briefing on, on is there anything unusual about our flight? What should we look for? Sometimes they would tell us uh, bases that we could not land. Um, and I, it was the first time I heard that, I thought it was, it was a country, and I, I don't want to name the country, but it was a country that, that we, we would crash the airplane before we would land in that country. And that country seemingly, you know, to my, uh, to my inexperienced ears, it seemed like a friendly country. But for some reason, there was a political reason not to do that. And that, that, that list would change. So the mission planning took two or three hours. Uh, the RSO and the pilot would uh, go over the and always talk about the alternates. What if, what if, what if. And uh, Jay Reed particularly was very methodical. And he always, he always told me in flight what the next alternate was. Anyway. So that's the mission planning. The day of the flight, we'd report to the physical support division, have our uh, 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 our meal of steak and eggs, which was uh, by regulation we not that we had to have it, but it, it had to be offered to us. Um, so we would have that. We they had a dedicated cook that uh, just cooked for us. I'm sure he had other duties, but he was the same guy every time. So he knew what we wanted. So we, the states were always ready for us. And then the uh, crew chief would come in while we were uh, having a dinner and, and he would drink coffee with us and talk about the airplane. Um, the, the SR-71, unlike any of the other Air Force airplanes I've flown, would not fly with a delayed discrepancy. If, if there was a discrepancy on the airplane, it was fixed before the next flight. So the logistics uh, train coming into the, to the SR was, was quite long and it's, it, it was quite effective. We always had spare parts. Anyway, we talked about the airplane and then uh, we'd uh, suit up and uh, go out uh, to the airplane, do a pre-flight. We wouldn't pre-breathe like the U-2s because our uh, pre-flight checklist was so long, it took about 45 minutes to get off the ground anyway. So we pre-breathed at 45 minutes, and then we had the uh, 20 minutes or so it took to get to the tanker. And so all of that uh, added up to about an hour of pre-breathing 100% oxygen to try to flush out the nitrogen in our blood so that we'd be less susceptible to the bends. Uh, so that's the mission plan. We already talked about going out to the tanker. Um, now, after we, after we uh, get off the tanker and we do the acceleration up to I never flew, I think, maybe three or four flights in my career that I did not go supersonic because the airplane was built for that. There's really no reason to fly the airplane unless you're going to exercise the uh, supersonic capabilities of the airplane, the, the heat and all that. And that just kept the airplane ready. They, they, it kept the, the maintenance knew, you know, what to expect. So when we... Um, after we did the Axel and we leveled off and we're following the black line, and I, I told you it's very important to do that stateside so we don't boom um, towns or cities. Um, we kept the uh, line pretty much. We usually go north and south in the western United States where there's not a lot of people um, or out over the ocean. Then during the, uh, for all flights, uh, I would uh, disconnect the autopilot and hand fly it for a while and then go through a manual inlet series. Uh, 
where I would uh, put the restart switch on, make the, the inlet safe with the forward bypass doors and the spike pull forward, and then reconfigure the uh, manual, the inlet manually, fly with that for a while, and then go back to auto, make sure it all worked. Uh, did that on every training mission for sure. The operational mission, I, I may not do that because I didn't want to mess it up. So um, our uh, flights would generally get us back. If we had, we, we numbered the, or called the flights by loops, how many times we refueled actually. So if you go hit the tanker, make a hot leg, a Mach 3 run, and then recover back at your base, then that's called a one loop. Uh, if you instead uh, of recovering the base, you go to another tanker, then that's then that that would be a, a two-loop mission, and that's the vernacular that we use. To rendezvous for the tanker, <clears throat> about 200 miles or so from the tanker, we start ranging. Uh, actually, we start ranging maybe before that. Start the descent around there, and so we were heading for the tanker, and uh, he's in an orbit, pre-planned orbit at a pre-planned altitude. And then we had a secure UHF radio that we could talk to the tanker on. We had ranging, so we knew bearing and distance from the tanker. And we just followed that on in. And there was an uh, elaborate procedure for descent, which we would undo the, the switches that we did on the, on the way up. And uh, we could not, um, for instance, when you come down, you can't bring the throttles back to idle, because if you did that, you would, uh, uh, the engines would, would uh, be cooled too quickly. So the, the first action is to come out of afterburner. We, we cruised in afterburner the whole time we were in cruise. The first thing is to bring both uh, throttles to the middle power position, 100% power without afterburner. And then you watch the mock, and the mock would come uh, down you know, 2.9, 2.8, 2.7, very slow descent. And then once it got down to... Um, Oh, about Mach 2.5 or so, then the uh, drag would start increasing. So then the, we'd lower the nose. Um, then we had some other uh, bypass doors to operate and, and inlet guide vanes and so forth. So about uh, 35,000 feet or so is when we would uh, go subsonic. By that time, since the drag is increasing this whole time, our nose low attitude is 15 degrees, so you're kind of looking at the ground. We, we call that the, the re-entry maneuver because <laughs> we're coming in very flat, about 12 degrees nose high at cruise. And then by the time we get down to 35,000, we are 15, uh, 15 uh, degrees low. And then we break through the sound barrier, go down to down, now we're at Mach 0.9 something. And then we would have to bring the nose back up to about 10 degrees nose low, or no, five degrees or so. Um, it was a, a considerable change in drag. And then we were kind of like a normal airplane. Uh, so we would hit the tanker. I would usually maintain a hundred knot uh, overtake on the tanker until I saw him. And then, because the, the airplane had no problem slowing down, not too much of a problem. So I always see the tanker out to the left. They always did the same rendezvous. And the, they're, uh, they'd be in a 30-degree back turn, so the big plan form would be easy to spot the tanker. <clears throat> he would roll out almost always right on that course. And we would have to just 
following beneath the tiger. Uh, I told you about the one time that I had to go in within a mile without seeing the tiger, but that again, that's that's okay because we confirmed our altitude. So after we uh, then um, that's it for the mission and the, and the coming down. But uh, now the next thing you wanted to hear was what coming back to the pattern. Uh, we would generally have about twenty thousand pounds of fuel. My my being my personal bingo was. Uh, when I saw less than 10,000 pounds of fuel, then my next landing or my next circuit was a full stop. Um, so about 20,000 pounds, we, we could do a penetration approach. We could do um, a, a, a GCA, a ground-controlled uh, approach, or an instrument landing system approach, maybe one or two of those. Maybe hit the circuit. We, we were all, all of us would, could do touch and goes because it was a single pilot airplane. So we might do a touch and go. My, my technique was not to do a touch and go because I didn't want to hurt the tires. Those tires are only good for about 12 landings. So I would do a very low approach and uh, with the gear down, try to go as low to the, to the uh, runway as I could without touching, which is a, a, a nice skill to have because <laughs> you want to know where the, where the runway is. And the, uh, the ability to hold the airplane very steady and very... Uh, level on it. So that's what I would do. And then um, when I saw 10,000 pounds of, uh, of fuel, then my next one was a full stop. Our approach speed was one, 175 knots plus uh, one uh, knot for every 100 pounds above uh, 10,000 pounds, or for every 1,000 pounds above 10,000 pounds. So normally my approach speed was 175 knots. Um, like a normal airplane, three-degree glide slope or so, coming down to the runway, we would always uh, aim for the. Uh, I, I would aim for the center of the overrun at a quarter of a mile because this is a big delta-wing airplane. It has lots of ground effect. So this was unlike any jet that I've flown. At a quarter of a mile, I'd go to idle, um, and then just. As, as my uh, B-57 instructor said, paint the uh, airplane onto the runway, um, and it would generally land the first, certainly the first thousand feet in that technique. Given fuel, uh, again, wet wind, of course, you have a 30-knot headwind, you might, you might make it a little closer than a quarter mile. <laughs> but that's that's how you land the airplane. I, I never liked uh, to hear uh, SR pilots say, oh, it was an easy airplane to land. Well... If you, you know, if everything works out, it's an easy airplane to land. Uh, its maximum crosswind was 15 to 20 knots. So I've landed in crosswind because sometimes in Okinawa, you don't have any choice unless you go to Naha. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I landed in about a 25 knot crosswind, and, and I, I could see the reason why they had that limit. I had to stick full, uh, it was a right cone, uh, right crosswind. I had to stick full to the right, wishing I had more. And then, um, a crabbed approach until this quarter mile, then I had to kick the crab out and then accept a slight drift as the airplane touched down, which I don't, didn't like that at all, but there wasn't any choice. The drag chute buckle was attached to a point above uh, our tank four, our fuel tank four, and that was uh, essentially the center of gravity of the airplane when it's, when it's light. So and the reason for that is that when we touch down, we 
we immediately deployed the drag chute as soon as we felt the main wheels touch. The drag chute handle is up here on the left. You pull it out, and the flight manual said, when you pull the drag chute out, the drag chute handle, do not keep your hand near the drag chute handle. Why? Because in about two seconds, you're going to feel a quarter to G deceleration. Quarter, and that would push your hand in there. And the way that you jettison the suit, the chute is to uh, push the handle in. So uh, that you know, it's always amused when I see things like that because I know, yeah, there's a story behind that. So uh, put the uh, drag chute handle out while the uh, airplane is still 15 uh, degrees high. That's a, it's a, that's about what the uh, 12 to 15 degrees. And it, it's a good feeling when your job is to stop the airplane to feel that quarter of a G deceleration immediately. So boom, jump. But there was no pitch tendency. It didn't tend to pitch down or pitch up as a result of, the, of where the buckle was, was located. So uh, you kind of watch your uh, airspeed and gently make the uh, landing for the nose wheel. If you did nothing, then the nose wheel would slam down on the runway and, and you might break something. So uh, we all, landing the SR-71 was a two-step, three-step if you count the drag chute. Main wheel touchdown, drag chute out, and then uh, gently land or lower the nose wheel to the runway. Once you're on the runway, engage nose wheel steering and uh, test the brakes because uh, you don't have reverse thrust, you don't have speed brakes, no uh, flaps, no high lift or drag devices of any kind. And uh, so your uh, your uh, salvation is the uh, the uh, the uh, brakes, which. The brakes and the landing gear were probably the weakest system in the SR-71. I had a test pilot ask me, well, you've flown this for a while. What's the weakest system? And I, gosh, I couldn't think of it. You know, well, I guess it was the tires. The tires were only good for about 12 landings because they were like uh, 460 PSI of nitrogen. They were very hard. Uh, to have a 140,000-pound airplane like the SR-71 is fully loaded with like nice big balloon tires. But there wasn't enough room in the wheel well or balloon tire. So they had a, a tire that was literally this big around. They had uh, three on each truck and it went into its own little uh, compartment. We called it a can. that was insulated and cooled by the air. So, so you don't want your tires heated up to 650 degrees. So uh, it, it kept the tires so cool. And they were impregnated with aluminum for some reason. So they were, they were uh, silver tires very pretty tires but having such a high uh, high uh, uh, tire pressure it tended to not if it hit a rock for instance it wouldn't give it would, it would cut the tires so we were very careful about uh, checking the runway prior to takeoff and prior to landing that was the mobile uh, the mobile officer's duty to do that so going, so going, going back, back to, to the landing, landing phase, phase there, you've, you've got, you've got um, the chines outside the cockpit, the cockpit, sort of looking either side. You've, you've got a 12 degrees nose-up attitude. Um, are you able to see the runway um, yes. in, in the final stages? In the front seat of the A model, yes. The back seat of the B model, no, you couldn't see the runway. But you could see where the runway isn't, and that's where you want to fly. Now, in the turn to final, you know, you're making a turn to final, then yeah, you see the runway out. But as you roll out, now the runway, you, know, you, not, you don't see the runway. 
but if you want to, you know, sneak a peek, you could always hit the aileron a little bit and look. But you don't really have to. Just come on down, because make a mental image of what's around the runway. Usually there's a, a stanchion, a light, uh, something like that. And then just see where that is. And this landing, landing the uh, airplane from the backseat of the B model was not, I'm not going to say it wasn't difficult. It was, it was doable, quite doable. And I never felt bad about that. In fact, I always, if I was an instructor pilot, I always demanded at least one landing for myself so I could maintain my, my proficiency. How long was the aeroplane hot for once you'd landed? Um, I, I read that you know, you, you'd need to wait for a while before you could really touch the aeroplane. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff written. This, this is not true. The, the skin of the airplane is fairly thin. So when you come down you know, subsonic, now you're in minus 50 degree uh, Fahrenheit temperature. So the, uh, the skin of the airplane cools. So you're, there's, there's nothing nothing bad about the skin of the airplane. The thing that stays hot are the, uh, the landing gear uh, struts. Landing gear struts, take it from one who has been there, um, remains very hot for probably an hour, maybe 30 minutes to an hour after you land. Um, I've heard that that was the largest single piece of forged titanium, uh, at least up to that point, that's, that's been made. And it, it was big, thick thing as it uh, had to carry a lot of weight and it had to, the airplane was, it wasn't recommended that you land heavy weight and full fuel, but you could do it. It was physically possible. And it was physically possible because of the strut, the landing gear strut was so big. So uh, one time I, I was around the airplane and uh, after landing and I was mobile and I just, I wanted to look at something. I came over to the, uh, and just touched the landing gear strut and uh, found out that yes, it, it it stays uh, hot. The, the brakes are hot too. The, the brakes are kind of small. Um, they had six six layers of brakes, and um, they would put at least one, maybe two, uh, gasoline-powered fans on the uh, on the uh, the tires, both both sets after landing, and keep them on there for about twenty minutes. Just to make sure that because the brakes have a tendency to uh, increase in heat, I'm not sure how that works physically, but to say that uh, the brakes get uh, hotter after they mm. sit. So the so the brakes were the part of the weakest system on the earth. I wonder if it's a bit like uh, cooking a chicken. You know, you know, you take a chicken out of the oven and it increases in temperature. Could be. Clock, <laughs> <laughs> clock. We need to find somebody who who knows about thermodynamics. I think that's uh, that'll have to be the next guest. We'll find out why chickens and tires and and brakes uh, heat up even uh, once the heat's gone away from them. But they were hot, and if you um, if you aborted a, a, a takeoff, for instance, then you had to, and you know there was maybe a something that didn't matter much, and you want to take off again, you had to make sure that those brakes are cool, just in case you had to abort a second time. And then the uh, the sensors, the cameras, whatever it is that you had gone out and used to to get the intelligence that you were you were after, um, was that immediately taken away from from the airplane? And you know, the wet film developed. Uh, did you get to see it? What was the process from your point of view after the mission? From an operational um, mission, we 
we generally, and I say generally because one of my flights uh, determined that it was uh, that it was unsafe to taxi into the hangar while the hangar was still wet. So when uh, when we would take off on an operational mission, first thing that maintenance would do would be to dry the uh, the floor of the hangar. If the floor of the hangar were not dry and we couldn't taxi into it, I found that data point on one of my flights. Um, I could tell you about it, but it's kind of yeah. interesting. Well, is it interesting? Well, I, it, it was for me. <laughs> well, and I, think, I, I think you should share it. Well, the, the listeners can make their mind up. Okay. There was, um, this was early on in my flying career, and I, I told you about the first year of flying, and I was having problems refueling. I, I never failed to get my fuel, but it just wasn't comfortable. And, that, and I found myself going like this. And, uh, and I told you, Rich Graham told me the exact technique to use to light the burner on the, on the boom. And, uh, and so after that, it was okay. But this was before, before Rich Graham told me this. It was early in my career. I, I um, at Okinawa... It's where we fly uh, most of our flights for, uh, for North Korea. And every once in a while, we would fly what they call a rocket ride. And this was a ride where they wanted us to sneak up on them uh, so that they not be not be warned that uh, the SR-71 was flying. And, and we would do a radio out uh, procedure. We would have a, a pilot up in the tower to brief them on what was going on. And when the time came for us to uh, taxi, for instance, we just get a green light flash from the tower. We'd go out and taxi again, a green light from the tower, and we were ready for takeoff. Um, and then we would take off all radio silent, would not refuel. So we would have, a, instead of a 45,000 fuel load, we'd have a 65,000 fuel load. So we would go from brake release right up to Mach 3, uh, which incidentally takes about 12 minutes. And uh, people ask me, what is the acceleration like? Well, if you do the, do the physics of the, you know, from zero to uh, uh, 2,000 miles an hour in 12 minutes, whatever the acceleration that is, and I never have worked it out. But it, it, it felt good. It was, it was a nice nice, nice uh, pressure on my back, which I didn't feel I was accelerating. Anyway, then we go to uh, Korea and make uh, one pass and then come back to Okinawa. Uh, total time about uh, 45 minutes or so. So I was scheduled for one of these rocket rides, and I, I thought, well, gosh, this is going to be really easy because I don't have to refuel. <laughs> I'm just going to get in the airplane. I'm going to fly the airplane and, and, uh, and uh, you know, have time to enjoy it. Well, <laughs> when I when uh, when we took off, everything was fine. Going up uh, in the axle, I started getting unstarts. And I'm not sure whether I did the procedure correctly because I was a little excited and and, uh, and I went through the procedure. I could not get the inlet not to unstart. It would unstart every time I go back to auto. I would fly, try to fly manual. It would unstart. So I said, "Well, we can't we can't make this mission." So we had to abort the mission. And then coming back to uh, Okinawa, I had a generator trip off. Reset, and it was okay. Now, in the SR-71, if you lose both generators, the airplane crashes because the fuel uh, boost pumps are AC-operated, and you can't operate them off the battery. And if you don't have the AC uh, fuel pumps operating, there's not enough fuel pressure for the engines to, to operate. That was flight-tested, too. That was the, the first time the B-model crashed. 
uh, was uh, new to uh, MIPA generators. Uh, they, had, they had two B models, and then we, uh, after that, that happened before I came into the program, but then we only had one B model. And the, the, uh, the wing issued a directive and had a, a bunch of emergencies where we had to land as, we had land as soon as possible, land as soon as practical, uh, continue the mission, but don't do another loop. We had these type of criteria. And loss of one generator is a land as soon as possible. So uh, it, anyway, it reset. So I came back, made an approach, touched down, and as soon as I put the nose wheel down, the uh, there was a nose wheel shimmy that uh, caused, it, I swear it was plus or minus 20, 25 degrees of bank in the cockpit. So the cockpit was going, boom, 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 boom. Lost the same generator, reset it, it, it was okay. I came back so quickly, 25 minutes or so, that um, they didn't have time to uh, clean the floor, to sweep to the floor, or to remove the uh, barrier at the end of the runway. The barrier for us was a, um, a barrier that would pop up and engage the, the main gear. The barrier for all the fighters that they had at, at, at uh, Kadena was a uh, cable across the runway that was raised by little donuts, so a cable and a donut, so the cable is about this far above the, uh, the runway, which would engage a um, hook, but we didn't have a hook, we just had the main gear, so we had our own special barrier. Well, they didn't have time to remove the barrier, so I taxied over the barrier, blew a tire, just one as it turns out, uh, because of the uh, 450, uh, 460 PSI of the tires. I, I radioed, I said, do you want me to taxi in? Do you want to tow? I heard it and blow, and they confirmed it was wrong. Oh, no, go ahead and taxi in. All right. So going in the hangar, and I turn, and, and just as normal, going going into the hangar, and when the, uh, we're going as slow as I could go, when it came time to stop, I stepped on the brakes, and nothing happened. I just kept on skidding, because the, uh, the oil content of the, of the fuel was very slippery. And uh, so the tires, even though the tires had stopped rolling, they just slid right on through. So here I am going towards a blast fence. They had both uh, doors of the hangar open, so it was an open thing. But normally they had uh, parked the uh, physiological support division van in front. Thank God it wasn't there. So I had room to, so I'm thinking to myself, I, I went to alternate steering brake and that didn't work. And I couldn't shut down the engine because then I, I lose nose wheel steering and brakes. So then I'm really on my own. So I had to keep the, the engine going. I didn't know if I'd shut down the engine, whether it would stop or not. And it probably wouldn't. So I kept the engine, all these, this thing I had to make these uh, decisions, you know, within two seconds. So I said, I'll keep the engines running and hope that I can get to dry ground on the other side. But there wasn't enough room for the airplane and the blast fence to occupy the same area. So as soon as I came through the uh, uh, the hangar, I kind of said one potato, two potato, three potato, because I put the wing out there. If I turn right then, the wing's going to hit the wall. So I waited till the last minute that I, I could to miss the uh, blast fence. And did a right turn about 30 degrees to the right. And as soon as the main wheel hit the dry pavement, I stopped. 
So what uh, what I thought was going to be a piece of cake, a fun mission, turned out to be uh, probably someone asked me what my most significant flight in the SR-71 was. It was that. And to this day, I don't know what I would have done if um, I had that choice. If I was going to hit that blast fence, the material in front of the cockpit is rather soft. It's not stainless steel. It's a it's a radar stuff. So am, am I going to have this radar in my lap, uh, which would not be too good? Uh, or my other alternative would be to, to eject. <laughs> I don't think I would have ejected. So anyway, it worked out. If, if you had ejected, would your RSO have gone at the same time? Was it their command ejection system? No, they, uh, it, it's independent. He would have to do his own. So, and we didn't have enough time to even talk about that. It was just... You know, he says, what's going on? I can't stop. Alternate steering brake. And I said that. And uh, that changes the uh, the uh, power of the brakes from one system to the other. That wasn't the problem. Anyway, after that, they uh, they made a hard and fast rule that, you know, this, it was up to maintenance to make sure that the, uh, that the hangar floor was, was dry. On an operational mission, uh, while we were shutting down the engines, they were taking the stuff off the airplane. Uh, it, uh, it looked kind of like a pit stop at uh, Indianapolis 500. When these guys come in, swarm in, and they have drills, you know, <laughs> taking off uh, panels and everything, and then downloading the stuff, and then they're off, they're gone. Yes, we could see the materials. I, um, we were encouraged to see the materials, to see uh, if there was anything that we could do. And I told you the story about the technician that said, he said, sir, I think, sir, your pictures are fuzzy. <laughs> Can't have that. Your, your reference to the, the hangar being, the hangar floor being wet, um, for anybody uh, who's sort of not sure about that, you're not talking about rainwater, are you? You're talking about wet because oh, fuel, fuel leaked out of the airplane. Absolutely, fuel. The worst I was saying, saw was like a thousand pounds an hour of fuel. I mean, just streaming fuel sometimes. It is interesting to note that the, the um, there's an SR-71 at Duxford um, here in in Cambridgeshire in the UK, and they still have drip pans underneath that. I'm not sure if that's if that's oil from the engine or hydraulics or something else, or maybe it's fuel. I, I don't know, but. Maybe it's just to make, make the display look like the airplane really was in the hangar. Because <laughs> it had drip pans. Drip pans. So go take us back then to about 15 minutes ago where you talked about sort of getting the mission down from the intelligence, um, you know, the vault, the intelligence people. Um I mean, we're, we're making the assumption that people know what the SR-71's mission was, but, you know, can you you know, give us a sort of uh, an idiot's guide to what it did. What, what was the purpose of the airplane? And, you know, is it, is it correct that these missions often came from the president or from somebody very senior in, um, you know, the uh, the military? Well, yes, uh, I'm sure it came from the president. The, um, the trolling mission definitely came from the president. The, to answer your, I mean, the broadest answer to that question is I don't know because I never was in the, staff that, uh, that did that. There were a lot of crew members who went from uh, being a, a crew member in the SR to the Pentagon where they worked that kind of uh, problem. Um, the only thing I knew was that uh, we were given our, our mission and told what was going to be on the airplane and when 
when and where it operated. Um, that, that, that's all that I really knew about it. I mean, I'd heard lots of other things, uh, but uh, that's really all we knew. Now, we could, we could carry uh, photo, two, two types of uh, cameras. Um, one was a horizon-horizon camera, and the other was, was uh, uh, one that would take, or you could go into a bank and take a, take a, a wide swath. But, um, then we had radar, and then we had listening devices, I call them, radios, things that sucked in uh, electromagnetic uh, information. The details of those uh, things, of course, are classified, and I, I never studied them. I, I, don't, I didn't know any of the details of any of that stuff. Uh, I knew about what the resolution of the cameras looked like, because uh, I could see the, the, the photos, but I never asked those questions. I, I never wanted to know what they were, because we were in a, we were in a business where um, the likelihood of our being captured I, it was small, but it was there, because we flew over and around countries that didn't want us there and would have delighted in capturing us or choosing us down. Um, so with that in mind, when I, when I flew personally, I think most of us were there. As I told you before, we, we were military mission, uh, military men on a military mission flying a military airplane. It was clearly marked, although you couldn't see it 15 miles in the air. But uh, on my uh, left shoulder was an American flag, it had my name and it had my rank. So that, that identified me as a major lieutenant colonel. And then um, I carried, the only thing I carried with me was my uh, military ID, which uh, also was the Geneva Convention identification. And that's all, that's all I carried. That, that identified me as who I was. So that, that, that was supposed to give us some sort of uh, standing if we were captured. But if we were captured, they would want to know all the details of, of where we flew and what we did and when we took pictures and all that. And uh, I, I couldn't tell them because I didn't know. So you, who did the mission planning then? You, you would. Um... We did the mission planning. I knew okay. where we were flying and I knew when the sensors were going to come on. But what the sensors were looking for, what they did, I, it did not interest me. I mean, it was interesting, but I didn't even know that. The, the backseater knew, knew the inner workings of the stuff. So he, he was the guy who handled any of the technical uh, data that we as a crew needed to know. So so you can talk freely, I understand, you know, from, from our first conversation about where you went and the yeah. missions you, you flew. Um, you just mentioned that you sometimes overflew or you flew near to. Um, can you... Give us, give us a, a taster then of a, a mission that stands out in your mind. Um, you, you talked about Korea, about um, yes. you know, North, North Korea being one. In fact, I, I, last time you asked me that, so I, I wrote some notes on that. So I'll, I'll just refer to the notes to make sure that the, uh, the dates are correct. Uh, call it the North Korea trolling mission. This was, uh, which it took place on October 26, 1981. It started on November 13th, 1980, when I had the pleasure of flying a mission against uh, North uh, North Korea. It was, I consider it just a, I hate to say routine, because I hate the thing. It was on a routine mission. Well, none, none of our missions were routine, but we were on a normal uh, reconnaissance mission uh, over North Korea. 
and we get this uh, message from the from the North Koreans. Um, I, I know it's November 13th because that's my birthday. So here I flew this thing on my birthday. And this is what uh, North Korea said about it. Um, Yang, November 14th, is when they sent the message out. The U.S. imperialist aggression forces, which um, are now hastening preparations for a war, frantically kicking up war dust against the northern half of the republic, Republic of North Korea, i.e. North Korea, uh, committed a military provocation by infiltrating an SR-71 high-speed, high-altitude reconnaissance plane, at least they called this a reconnaissance plane, at around, uh, <laughs> gave a time, deep into the air above the coastal sea of our country, east of Kongsong, uh, east coast, uh, for espionage, while uh, raising a hue and cry over fictitious threat from the north, these days, the U.S. imperialists perpetrate military provocations more frequently against our people, zealously encouraging the um, military fascist gangsters, that's, I guess that's the South Koreans, <laughs> to anti-communist smear campaigns. Well, an anti-communist smear campaign wouldn't be hard, would it? After uh, September 4th alone, the United States has infiltrated spy planes, oh, the worst spy plane on 36 occasions into the air above the territorial waters and coastal sea of our country. It is a challenge to peace in Korea and her peaceful re reunification, uh -huh, and dangerous act jeopardizing peace in Asia and the rest of the world that the U.S. imperialists continue penetrating espionage acts against our people at a time when our new momentous per uh, proposal to guarantee peace in Korea and achieve for peaceful reunification has evoked unanimous support and sympathy of the entire world and the North and South and the world and then blah, 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 blah. <laughs> we got this and this we just howled over this. When I was in Okinawa we got this message and uh, and it was uh, it was a uh, cause for a round of cheer. <laughs> a pint of real <laughs> So that was really funny. So that happened on uh, uh, November 13, 1980, um, President Reagan had just been elected. Now, let me back up and say one little snippet. I, I joined the SR-71 group. I hadn't been a pilot, but I was uh, checking out when uh, President Ford was president. At that time, we overflew Cuba quite regularly. When um, President Carter uh, was elected and, and came in um, in the uh, 1976, 77, then we um, might have flown one overflight, and then about two weeks later, he's, well, he, uh, the word was sent down that we would no longer overfly Cuba. Instead, we would fly around Cuba. So we would uh, hit the uh, southeast side of Cuba and then make a circle around the thing and then go away. Um, we asked, we had the, our, uh, our minders at the Pentagon ask, well, what are the rules of engagement? If we, uh, if we have a problem, like a loss of a generator or something, south of Cuba, can we overfly Cuba at Mach 3 to uh, go to uh, Florida? Because that's the way that we land as soon as possible. If you're going to land as soon as possible, you're going to do that. But the answer came down, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to go all the way around. So... Uh, you know, and we didn't like the idea of, of 
you know, we're, we're out there flying these missions and putting ourselves needlessly in, in danger of, uh, of crashing because we might lose another generator and going all the way around Cuba, especially subsonic, with, you know, they could launch MiGs after or something like that. I, it just wasn't a good idea. But anyway, that's what we lived with. So then sometime in the, um, in the President Carter administration, there was a scare, if you will, of a Russian deployment of troops. I don't really know all the details, but uh, for a while there, and then we overflew Cuba, maybe for a week or so. After that uh, blew over, then we went back to the, you can't do it. So Reagan is elected about two or three weeks after President Reagan was elected. We start overflying Cuba again. I mean, we do it quite uh, quite often. And so that was one of my favorite missions, just to uh, go over Cuba, just to, uh, to boom uh, Fidel Castro, who I hated. Just 90 miles from our, you know, communist country, 90 miles from our country is unacceptable as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, that's um, I, 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 the, that was by way of introduction about President Reagan. So I think that the North Koreans were kind of testing him. Well, then on August 25th, 1981, Maury Rosenberg and Edie McKim were flying a reconnaissance mission uh, over the demilitarized zone and over some land mass that uh, the North Koreans claimed was theirs. Well, they, they shot a SA-2 at it. A, a surface-to-air missile. And then uh, Maury saw it out, and he was out of his right window, and it's kind of hard to tell where an explosion is because there's nothing to compare it to. So he says, oh, just a few miles over there to the right. So uh, in accordance with our rules of engagement, we made a, they made a turn directly to Okinawa. Uh, they, they, I think that they were through with their mission, but essentially they, they aborted the mission at that point. Came back and reported all that, and... Um, I was in England when that happened, and uh, I was briefed on that, and uh, we were kind of, con con not concerned for our safety, but concerned that this might be a turning point in, in the relationship somehow. So from that point, our reconnaissance flights were drawn down about 30 miles south of where we normally flew. It's not that we flew the same line every time, but whatever line we were going to fly was about 30 miles south, so we would be well within... Uh, well outside of their area and well outside of uh, their SA-2 uh, threat range. So anyway, I, I arrived then. I, I was in England, and I came to Okinawa on September 24th, 1981. We were still drawn down then. And on September 26th, uh, the Assistant Secretary of Defense, uh, Frank Carlucci, came to our detachment. I didn't know much about him then, but he subsequently became the, uh, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, but he was the uh, deputy then. I was designated his briefing officer because I, I had been on the island like two days. We had a three-day rule. So we couldn't fly for three days, so I had nothing to do. And so the commander said, well, we have this uh, guy, and I want you to take him out to the airplane and show uh, him the airplane. He was a very nice man. And, I was impressed that, you know, I was talking to the Assistant Secretary of Defense. I took him to the hangar to show him the SR-71. Uh, he asked uh, 
very intelligent questions. I answered them. He asked mainly about our missions and, and how we looked at them and how we felt about them. And uh, what I told him was, I said, well, we, we also flew training missions out of Okinawa, which really kind of not called us, but we could fly, are we doing this? Why don't we fly an operational mission? So I, I made that suggestion. I said, you know, we're flying training missions out of here. Why don't we just go up to Korea or the Kimchon Peninsula or something and maybe uh, do some good. And uh, anyway, we, we got, I don't know if that worked, but we didn't fly too many training missions after that. Uh, he was a very personal band. I put him in the cockpit, and uh, he uh, was not a pilot, so he didn't really know what to ask, but I showed him the special uh, switches for the end of the He also mentioned that President Reagan was furious when he heard that they, they shot at us. Uh, then uh, that was on uh, September 26th. Then on October 3rd, uh, the uh, Air Force Vice Chief of Staff, uh, Robert Mathis, uh, came to our a detachment and briefed us on a special mission that was going to be, uh, be flown. Now, Maury's, Maury and Edie's uh, mission was a two-loop mission. The first loop was uh, flying uh, between Taiwan and China. The second loop was uh, flying twice over the, uh, the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. And it was on their last pass that they really fired on. Uh, so the uh, General Mathis said that uh, we would fly a mission exactly like the one that Maury and Edie flew, exactly. So it would be a two-loop mission, and we'd go through straight to Taiwan and so forth. And that uh, they wanted us over a particular designated area, which was where they fired the missile, uh, within one minute. And uh, he said, we'd really like plus or minus 30 seconds, but we'll give you a minute. And so uh, one of us asked, well, why do you want us to do that? And they said, well, because we plan to uh, smash their uh, their launch facility. So the uh, fighters that are going to do the, uh, the uh, mission are going to be headed in the right direction at that time. So if they fire at you, we want, we, what he wanted was the missile to come off the rails and then the missiles to hit the uh, site virtually simultaneously. So I, I got to fly that mission. When we flew missions, it was not people designated. It was just whose turn it was. All of us, all of our crew members were very jealous of that attitude. We were very cognizant of who flew last and who was next and so forth. We, we called it the crew ladder. The crew ladder was sacred. So we didn't want to break the crew ladder. So it's not that I was picked to do this. I was just the next guy up. And I was happy I was going to fly. So I flew that mission on uh, October 26th. And uh, we had some timing triangles. We took off early. And we had some timing triangles so that if we, if we uh, took off uh, uh, not early, that we would have some time to make up. So we did take off early. We did the... Uh, the first part of the mission, and then we uh, utilized the timing triangles to um, to kill some time, but we went over the, the site right on time. And uh, there was no missile launch, and I have to admit that I was, I hate to say this, but I was slightly disappointed they didn't, because I thought that that would have uh, definitely demonstrated the resolve of the United States government uh, against North Korea, because it was a communist country, and I hated it. So, now we got a message from the North Koreans over this mission that I flew. So they, they must have known something was going on. This is um, 
dated October 27th. This is the day after. Um, the U.S. imperialist aggressors infiltrated an SR-71 high-speed, high-altitude reconnaissance plane deep into the sky above the territorial waters of our country, the east of Hong Song, on the eastern coast from so forth time, and again sent the plane into the sky above the peninsula on the west coast. <laughs> well, that's true. So they has. <laughs> October 26, to commit espionage acts in the in succession against the northern half of the DPRK. They say the northern half because they claim South Korea is theirs too. So the, the northern half of the, the Democratic Republic. Lately, U.S. imperialist aggressors are ever more viciously committing espionage acts against our country, frequently changing the time of infiltration. Yeah, that's true. Of the spy plane. Oops, there, that's where, and the course of its flight. Espionage acts committed by the spy planes of the U.S. imperialist aggressors in the airspace of our country after November 11th, after October this, but were number 11 after October the 2nd. This shows that the U.S. imperialists knew war preparations, Reed, President Reagan, have entered a very grave state. They must be clearly mindful that there is a limit to the patience of our people and stop at once their espionage and hostile acts against the northern half of their country. We didn't stop. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, we we enjoyed that. I I don't know if the North Koreans had any idea how much we enjoyed getting those messages. Well, I know now. <laughs> so, BC, talk talk about being intercepted and and being shot at. Then, did it happen to you? Um, you know, moving that um, reconnaissance track thirty miles south um, suggests that you were concerned that it, you could get you could be hit. Um, was there a credible threat against you? Um, well, I don't think there was. Now, the SA-5 came into existence while I was flying the SR, and we were briefed that the SA-5 was a, a, it was a new uh, new missile that uh, you know had the capability of doing that. Uh, but we did fly through SA-5 rings uh, around Romansk. That's where they had them. And, um, they they never fired at me that I know of. They monitored us. We had the lights for a monitor launch, and uh, we had three lights. I forgot what they were called, but one was a monitor light. But we knew that they they were looking at us. Um, you asked about the uh, periscope. The periscope was there had three functions. One was to find out if we were laying down a contrail, and quite often, I'd say quite more. Yeah, quite often we would have a contrail up around Murmansk. It was very cold up there at altitude, and uh, we would be laying down a contrail so they could see see us, not only paint us on radar, but see us. Um, but we, uh, I mean, that, that was not a reason to abort the mission or anything. The other two reasons was to check the trim of the rudders, because you could tell if the rudders were streamlined. They had a little, uh, a little notch there that you could check. <clears throat> the other thing is at night, um, you could trim your engines by looking at the color of the afterburner, which incidentally was beautiful. Right. <laughs> there, you look through the periscope, you see both of the afterburners. They were blue, blue and white. And uh, we had uh, the power to change the EGT RPM relationship of the engines. And so we could actually trim the engines uh, or do it with the throttle. Throttle was the main thing. And, uh, 
So if you had the rudder centered and your fuel flow the same and the, the uh, afterburners uh, look the same, then you know you're pretty well on track. What about fighters? Um, you know, there are stories of, you know, sort of Russian fighters coming up, trying to intercept and flaming out because they, you know, just didn't have the performance. Do you see any of that? Yes, it's in, in the Baltic, in the Baltic Sea. Um, we, we were sometimes briefed to watch out for them because they, were, they, they had intelligence that they were going to do something, I guess. But again, it never, never bothered us. Um, I have seen contrails. I never saw an airplane. Uh, that I could identify. Of course, I wasn't just looking out the window. I, we rarely looked out the window, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> especially on a, on a what we call a take mission, an operational mission. We were in the in the denied slash take area. Uh, my my focus was here, right in the cockpit. So I I wasn't really looking for them, but occasionally I would look out the window and see contrails. You mentioned in the previous interview that you would um, you'd sort of go up to twelve and a half miles from the border, which is you know twelve miles is the international border. Um, but it sounds like you also overflew um, R- Russia. Is, is that the no, case? No. Okay. Nor China. Okay. Why? Why not? What was what was different between China and North Korea? Well, it was, we had a treaty after Francis Gary Powers was shot down. It was part of the get him back, which is, see, the, the uh, United States did not like to have reconnaissance pilots or RSOs captured because our, and, and Britain, I'm sure, is the same way. Uh, the government is uh, humanitarian in that respect. And, and so they, they did a lot of concessions to get Francis Gary Powers back that, that uh, they didn't want to do, but they did it. So we uh, we said we will not overfly you, and, and we did. Now, if we if somebody did, and I don't think anyone ever did, because I never heard about it, uh, it would have been a mistake. Uh, that's why I said when I when I see the landmass go underneath the chine, I'm just a little bit nervous because I'm sure don't want to be the first guy to do that. Our missions were all monitored by unknown persons. Uh, how they did it, I'm not sure, but uh, usually sometimes we would have. DC RC uh, 135s out away from this thing. There were in other ways that they were monitoring, maybe satellites. I don't know. But if we got off off course, I think that uh, someone would know about it. Certainly, we would know about it. We also in our in our airplane we had what we called a mission recording system, MRS system, and it um, I forgot how many grammars it, it measured and recorded, but it was virtually everything that the airplane did. Switches, switch position, and all that. Certainly, position, altitude, speed, mock, all that. You, you've talked about Okinawa. Um, you've talked about the UK. So there, there were two detachments. Um, well, when I came in, there were only one. That was uh, Okinawa. That was Det One. And then um, the uh, the U twos were with us at Beale also. So they had, I guess, they had Det Two and Three. I'm not sure. Anyway, the uh, then Det Four was uh, was uh, RAF Miltonville, and that uh, came in about 1981 or two. Before that, we were flying the Murmansk missions out of Beale, out of California. So you go from California all the way to the Soviet Union, Murmansk, and back—a ten and a half hour mission—and uh, that was that was really tough. 
I, I flew one of those and uh, maybe about, there's a story that I wrote about having to do bird into Norway. So I had the distinction of being the first SR-71 to land in continental Europe. We landed in England, but not in continental Europe. That's an interesting story, and it's online. And you just uh, Google B.C. Thomas uh, Norway, and you'll, you'll get that story. It caused a lot of, um, well, naturally, there was a lot of interest in, in that event. Yeah, it was the first one, and so it did. It, it caused a, a lot of interest in Norway as well as um, in our chain of command. Because you know, the, the, the airplane, I mean, I had top-secret stuff on board. You know, I'm landing it unannounced at a... Uh, a base that we never land at. We didn't have any, I uh, don't think we had any agreements written between us and the Norwegians about how to care for the airplane. So we were pretty much on our own. Uh, now, Norway is a, is a NATO ally, so I certainly expected to be, <laughs> to be treated nicely. <laughs> I expected it, but I wasn't sure. But we were treated very nicely. It was, it was really a, a pleasant experience. Uh, they even they told me uh, they, uh, they had a first lieutenant F-104 fighter pilot named Roar Strand, who's a great guy. I, I saw him just uh, about a year ago or so. He, he came to San Francisco and we had, had dinner together. Anyway, he was my, my minder. <laughs> he, uh, he, uh, the uh, general, General Omar at Norway said, that he would be there to help us and to take care of anything that we might need. But I think he was also there to make sure we didn't do anything stupid. <laughs> so so uh, he, uh, he took us to a restaurant. He took us uh, to his uh, apartment. And this is after we took care of the airplane. It was a, it was a, a pleasant experience. It, it, it wasn't pleasant, you know, to call back to the commander and tell him I'm in Norway. The wing commander. How how did you take care of the airplane? If it's got this secret stuff on it, who was looking after it? Well, the armed guards were, as it turns out. I, I asked the general. We had a, we had a set of instructions. If you have to land away, this is the things you have to do. And one of them was to secure the airplane, obviously. And so uh, we, we had a, a, a oil leak problem. So. When I landed there, I, I didn't want to keep the engine running too long, but I wanted to keep both engines running in case I had to move the airplane. So I was talking to first, it's, it's a civilian military field. I was talking to the civilian controllers, then I was turned over to the military. Uh, but you can't taxi the SR-71 on one engine very well because there's so much torque involved. So I wanted to keep both engines running you know, in idle, of course. So then I we went to a spot and I... I said, uh, do you have chocks? Yes. And so I said, please make sure that they're chocked nicely because uh, when you shut down the engines, there are no brakes. And if you're on a hill or something, what a horrible thing that would be. So uh, I had all the shirts. So I, then I shut down the engines and uh, opened the canopy. And they brought, I think it was a pickup truck or something with a ladder. And the uh, first thing was a major, a Norwegian a Air Force major, uh, popped up and said, uh, well, welcome to Norway. He says, well, thank you very much. And then he says, do you know Bill Groninger? Well, Bill was one of our pilots. <laughs> well, of course I know Bill. Well, he was my instructor when I went through, <laughs> went through training. So uh, most of the guys there, uh, the F-104 pilots had gone through training at uh, 
in the United States. I say most of them, at least some of them did. He did. And so it was, uh, you know, he spoke great English. And, and uh, so from there, it just, it was fine. The uh, commander met me and he was a very nice man, uh, very proper. And so um, he took me to his underground, or carved into a mountainside. I, I'd heard about these things, but I'd never seen one, where he had hangars, airplanes, maintenance, shops, everything is in this mountain. Well, it's pretty doggone impressive. So I asked for a uh, secure phone, uh, and uh, he had that, and I called back to my uh, command post and told them everything. They already knew that I'd landed, but they didn't know all the details. So I told them the details, and, uh, and uh, I, for, before that, I asked the commander if he would station armed guards on the uh, on the airplane if he would do that and he says oh yes we'll do that so he did that and there wasn't any problem we were there three days it took uh, took one whole day to get the cadre of people there but they'd done this before i think from landing away like i had landed holloman i think was the first place i landed mountain home and other places that u.s bases but uh, the drill was really the same. They bring all the equipment because no base has the equipment for the SR-71. The tow bars don't work or anything. So they have to bring everything from Veal. And so they know how to do it. And brought the tanker in for my fuel. And so it worked out well. Um, that, that story is online and it's, it's kind of lengthy. So. But I, I think it's interesting. Can you, um, can you talk a little bit about the culture then? So you've already described you know, about, um, you know, sort of being inducted into the program and despite having a test pilot background being sort of put in your place and told you would fly, you know, when, when the time was right. Um, and you've talked about, uh, I think you know, some elements of the culture, but, um, what was it like being in that community? Um, it was great. I mean, I, <clears throat> that's a short answer. It was good. I, I liked it. It was, uh, exactly what I, what I, uh, exactly what I thought it was going to be, but it was, it was my best thoughts of how that would be. Um, we were close-knit, really were. I never had any personal problems with any of them, with any of my uh, fellow crew members. We were all uh, very much gung-ho on the mission. We really, really, that was the first thing, is the mission came first, above everything else. And we had fun. We had fun. We were serious, but we had fun. And the, the thing about uh, giving each other simulators is is really remarkable. And I think the astronauts do the same thing. But um, we we were not easy on each other. When I, when I was an old time guy coming in the simulator, and the guy that I checked out as my instructor, he, he didn't pull punches. And, and the, the debrief was the same way. Did you notice that? So, no, maybe I didn't notice it. You know, something that he had done. We, we could pull any circuit breaker as an instructor, as a, as a uh, simulator instructor. And then in addition to that, we had failures, the little failure modules that we could, we could fail. Um, if, if they gave you an unstart, now the one thing about the, the circuit breaker is if, if there was no way to mask the pop of the circuit breaker, 
So what we would do is give the guy an unstart, and during the unstart, pull the circuit breaker. <laughs> that was that was a little known fact that, uh, that I learned later. <laughs> um, whatever the circuit breaker was, you know. Um, what, what 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 sort of traditions did you have? Um, there was well, I mean, one thing about, about this simulator that you, my goal, my goal to myself was I would never want to crash. I don't want to crash an airplane, but I don't want to crash a simulator during this this the simulator session. Well, I got over that that one real quick. This is something that um, has stuck with me. It's uh, this is like a sorting three or four. It's pretty early in the program, but just on the takeoff. Usually, the takeoff is routine. By that baby, because the real interesting stuff is when you get get airborne. So on takeoff, I'm going down there, and, and uh, there's no visual reference at all. So I'm, I'm making a 30 degree bank turn out of traffic from the takeoff and the gear is up and everything's fine. Well, he failed my attitude indicator at 30 degrees and um, but let the standby indica indicator, which is right above it, but it's smaller. And I didn't notice it. I didn't cross check. And you know, guess what happened? Well, I, yeah. and by the time I realized what was going on, I was, you know, 20 degrees nose low or something like that. Because that's that the and because my attitude in case was frozen, and I, I couldn't pull out. I crashed. And when you crash the simulator, this is what happens: a bell rings, a horn sounds, the uh, simulator is in a thing nose low, and a red light goes beep beep beep. Now, why is that? Because <laughs> you don't ever want to do that again. So every time I took off, Jay Reed was, uh, was really apologetic. He didn't notice it either, and he's got the same uh, attitude indicator back there, one that the, the standby. So uh, from then on, every takeoff, and as I told you, Jay was very very meticulous about reading the checklist and everything. He would, he would always tell me that attitudes checked, attitudes checked, attitudes checked. Thanks, Jay. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I only crashed once, <laughs> and I never forgot that. Taking off in the weather, man, I'm checking that at that standby to do Let that be a lesson to you, too, <laughs> if you're flying airplanes. I can tell you a funny story about happening in pilot training. Go on, why not? Okay, my first solo in the jet was a T-37, and I was so proud of myself that day. I mean, you bought my uh, instructor a bottle of booze like we're supposed to, and so he says, today, Lieutenant Thomas, you can go fly the airplane by yourself. Wow. So I get in this, this uh, T-37. First thing is go out to the area and, and do some things and then come back and shoot some patterns. You had to get three, uh, two touch and goes and a full stop. So I did that and I came back and my first two touch and goes I thought was just marvelous. And I was just so proud of myself. So I'm going around to make my, uh, my final... And so I'm on base. I turn uh, downwind. There's the runway back there. It's time to turn final. Turning base, turning up final. Gear check, full stop. And I had to say student, student pilot or something. Like that. Call sign, yeah, student. And so then, uh, five seconds later, I hear this call. Airplane turning final. Gave me a call sign. No gear, go around. Forgot to put the gear down. I was so damn mad at myself 
I didn't acknowledge the radio call and put the thing up. Gosh, I don't remember it's hurt. And so then, since I didn't answer them, that's mistake number two. They start shooting flares at me. <laughs> and my instructor is in the mobile unit watching all this. Well, you can imagine the debrief I had on that. Well, so that's the only ride that I flunked in the pilot training, but I had to do a progress check after that, which was another solo ride. Okay. No, it was with the instructor and, and making sure the gear down. And I swear, every time I put the gear down in an airplane after that, I thought about it. And it's right here. Yeah. Turning base, gear check, full stop. No, 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 no. <laughs> No gear. Oh my gosh. Did you have any, um, what about culture? Can you talk about Habu, uh, tie cutting? Those are things in the SR community. Yeah, the first uh, first operational flight, um, which is uh, after Det 4, it didn't have to be Okinawa, but traditionally it was Okinawa, it was the first uh, operational flight. Uh, you're supposed to buy some goofy looking tie. Mine was a purple and orange tie or something like that. The best one was Bob Crowder, who had a, uh, um, it looked like an American flag. It wasn't a flag because you don't cut flags. You know? <laughs> it, it had uh, red, white, and blue. Rather pretty. Anyway, his, his was the best. I couldn't find something like that. Uh, when you come down, then uh, you get your habu patch. Well, the habu patch is sewn on your, uh, on our flight suit as we were flying, assuming that they, they get the word that we went into the, take area and that's an operational mission and so then uh, the uh, they have the uh, sewing people and put a hobby patch 